Father, many of us this week have been tossed around by life circumstances. Some of us have been hurt, others scared. Some of us are just sad. And the world around us and perhaps our own flesh veiled from our eyes the, the truth of our identity in Christ, what you accomplished through him. So we thank you, Father, that already this morning through the reading of your word and our praying and these wonderful lyrics that the dust, in a sense, has been blown off the gospel in our minds and we've celebrated it. And now we come, Father, to you asking that you would help us further by helping us to understand your word, that you would resensitize our hearts to the truth, we would have a deep sense that these things that we read are true and that they apply to us. Would you please give us clear minds to understand how precisely you would have us to walk in light of the truth. Father, let all of these things be shrouded in the joy that we have just experienced rehearsing wonderful truths. We pray for your help in the coming minutes. We do it boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we're coming to a, a pivotal passage in, in the book of Hebrews, verses 9 through 25. Hebrews 10. I'm sorry, 19 through 25. So stand with me if you would and, and let us just try and to, to put all these things in our own hearts and our minds in the context of everything that we've seen over recent months and read these words with soberness. Hebrews 10 beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He's opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You may be seated. When I was a boy, I had a, an accident on my bicycle one day and messed my knee up pretty good. The, the typical prescription around our parts was to just walk it off. And so I walked it and walked it and walked it and couldn't walk it off. A few hours later, I was still in a good deal of pain. And so my mom, my mom brought me some pills. And I looked, at, I looked at these pills and I said, well, these are, these are head pills because I, had, I also had migraines, and so these were the pills that she would give me for migraines. And I, I was just perplexed. And I, I asked her, how, how are these pills going to know to go to my knee? And, and she said, well, they just will. So I thought, well, all right, I'll take them. So I took the pills, and a little while later, my knee felt better, and I was amazed. I mean, we got ourselves a miracle drug here. No matter what hurts, these things, they know where to go. And I would suggest to you that the passage before us, at first glance, it may look like, this is really not for me. This is for everybody. This, this, this passage is one-stop shopping for the sojourner on the way to the New Eden. Some of us this morning are sad. And there may be maybe one big thing weighing us down. Maybe it's a host of, of things all working together to put us in this place where we're just downcast, sad. Others of us perhaps are anxious. Circumstances 
seem to be against us. We're not sure what's going to happen. So we're worried. Others of us may be doubting. We've seen things in the world. Maybe we've seen things in our own lives and in our perception. They just don't They just don't line up with what we have believed. And so we're not sure what to think. You know, there may be a precious few of us who are just fine this morning. But this life tends to be an assault on our perseverance in the faith. And that assault can, can, can look differently at different times. But we, we are not meaningfully different than the original recipients of this letter. All of us need perseverance in order to cross the finish line of faith into glory. And in, in this passage, we find something like the, the Tylenol of the Christian life. I mean, no matter where you find yourself this morning, this is exactly what you need. The, the author is, is handing to us the nuts and bolts of, of practicing perseverance. Practically speaking, he, he is saying to us, here is how you hang in there until the end. Whether you're mourning, anxious, doubting, something in between, or, or maybe just fine, do this. This is the prescription for you. He gives us, he's going to give us three practices of perseverance. The, f- the first of those is draw near to God through Christ. Draw near to God through Christ. Look with me again at verse 19. He writes, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So the the author has written this so that we would run the race with endurance Looking to Jesus. Jesus is the only way to traverse this life successfully and enter the better Eden in the next life. And he spent several chapters now, we've walked through every verse of it, he spent several chapters now arguing for why Jesus is better specifically than than the old covenant way. And by extension, he's he's better than every other way that we might seek to to traverse this life and, and enter the next. And here we find in these few verses the pivot between this long theological section and some closing exhortations and warnings that he gives in the final chapters. And in in a sense, what we find here is that, that in light of all that's been taught already, the author calls us to a life of perseverance. So here in verse 22, we get the first of three, which is let us draw near. And we'll consider shortly what exactly he means by that. What does he mean by drawing near? But he, he, he prefaces this exhortation with three verses telling us why we need to do this. Why we need to draw near and why we need to do the other things that he's prescribing in the following verses. Why draw near? He gives us two reasons. The first of those is, is because we have confidence to enter the holy places. We have confidence to enter the holy places. We've already sung about this this morning. Boldly I approach the eternal throne. And remember that in the old, the old covenant system, Only priests could enter the holy place. And only one of those priests, the high priest, could enter the most holy place where the ark was. And that that whole system, it it seems, was designed to cause trepidation in one's approach to God. Because everywhere you look in in the tabernacle, there were these reminders of sin. If we understand the, the tabernacle itself, it, it, it is something like, or was something like, a wrath hazmat suit protecting the people from God's holiness. Because Im- impurity cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. And so the tabernacle functioned to allow sinful people to be near God without His holiness breaking out against them and killing them because of their sin. The priests, they, they were ceremonially, ceremonially cleansed in order to enter the, the tabernacle. If they weren't cleansed, they would die. 
There's a curtain there separating the holy place from the most holy place. That's a reminder of sin which separates us from God. It's a reminder of the wrath of God that comes if we enter His presence unclean. The rituals surrounding the tabernacle, they they, they required for the high priest to enter the most holy place once per year. And he had to follow follow the instructions to a T or he would die. Months ago, over a year ago, we looked at Leviticus chapter 10 where Aaron's sons, two of his sons, they worshipped God in a way that he had not prescribed and they were instantly killed. There there was surrounding the tabernacle a, a kind of pins and needles atmosphere. Because being near God, it is on the one hand, it is the greatest thing, it is the best thing for human beings, it is what we were created for, but being near Him while guilty is deadly. Confident approach to God. It was not something that anyone would associate with the Old Testament system. Conversely, the author of Hebrews teaches that we, those of us who are partakers of the new covenant, we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, what what is the source of that confidence? We can rewind a bit and, and think about these things. And he's mentioned some here in these verses. We can be confident to enter the holy places because of the once for all, conscience cleansing, guilt removing, one and done sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He goes on to say that we enter through a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is His flesh. It's not like the old system of of sinful priests and imperfect sacrifices offering limited access to God. But but, but this way is new. It's new both in the sense that it's recent and it's different. One way that it's different is that it's the living way, He says here. And and, and we should think about that as, as... A life-giving way. That's what he means by this phrase, the living way. It's a life-giving way. We enter the heavenly places into God's presence. We go from death to life. And the author compares Jesus' flesh to that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy places. As mentioned, the way into the most holy place in the tabernacle was through that curtain. Jesus' flesh, and we should conceive of this specifically as Jesus' flesh torn on the cross, that is what provides our entrance into God's presence. Because Jesus died on the cross, our sins have been covered, we've been forgiven, His righteousness has been credited to our account, There is no wrath reserved for us. There is no debt left to pay. And so, we can have confidence to enter God's presence. That's the first reason to draw near. We have confidence to enter God's presence. We we have an invitation from God Himself. But a second reason that we should draw near is because we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest Over the house of God, he says. A great high priest over the house of God. Now, if you would, turn with me back to chapter 3. The language that we read in chapter 10 should remind us of something that we saw in chapter 3. You'll remember that in chapter 3, the author was comparing Jesus to Moses. And that was a way of beginning to compare Jesus to the old system. Look with me at at Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See the comparison there? Moses, a faithful servant in God's house as a servant. Jesus, a faithful servant over God's house as a son. Moses, he says, testified to the things that were to be spoken later, and what he means by that is that his, his life, Moses' life and his writings, they all pointed towards something greater, and that something greater, of course, is Jesus. We have in Christ, as our great high priest, the fulfillment of all God's intention to return us to Himself. Further, we, we think of all that the author has said about Christ as our high priest in these preceding chapters. Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 
He is the, the perfect priest, not only because he has, he has defeated death, but because he has navigated this life perfectly. He is the perfect one for us to come to, to seek help so that we might navigate this life faithfully. We have a great high priest. And for that reason, we should draw near. We have confidence to enter the holy places, and we have a great high priest. For these reasons, he says, draw near. Now that phrase, drawing near, that idea, it's one of, one of the author's favorites. He uses it over and over. He uses it in 4.16, writing this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, indicating that this drawing near is something that we do in this life. He, he offers help to us right now. And the author uses that same phrase, drawing near. He uses it in 7.25, 10.1. We've just read it in, 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 in our passage for this morning. He uses it in 12.18 and 12.22. Right here in our, in our present passage, he calls us to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, which means that we should boldly approach the Father with confidence and joy, as opposed to approaching, approaching the Father doubtful of our place to be there. We should, we should not approach with doubt because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. He mentions also our bodies being washed with pure water. And most commentators, as they, as they consider that piece of it, our bodies being washed, most commentators would say that he's referring to baptism. And not necessarily the act itself, that the act cleanses our bodies, but he's talking about baptism, what baptism means. What it means is that we have been washed because of our union with Jesus Christ. Given that he's giving this exhortation to people on earth who are not in heaven, and what we've seen elsewhere in chapter 4 indicates that when he says draw near, he means enter God's presence for fellowship now through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Drawing, drawing near means availing ourselves of the fellowship and grace and mercy and strength that are afforded by the presence of God. The, uh, another way of just shrinking this down to one little phrase is He's, he's saying, enjoy God. Enjoy your relationship with Him. Go to Him. Trust Him. Listen to Him. Talk to Him. Live life before Him and with Him. What exactly does, does this have to do with perseverance? Some of us this morning, we, we feel our need for perseverance more acutely than others. But, but once again, this, this is a prescription for everybody. So, so what does this drawing near have to do with perseverance? Our, our finishing out this life faithfully and crossing into the better Eden. Well, drawing near is essentially the opposite of the danger that is tempting these believers to whom the author is writing. Their temptation is to distance themselves with Jesus. Life as a believer in this world is hard. So they're, they're tempted to distance themselves with Jesus, to get a little bit of relief from the persecution that's coming on them, and, and they're, they're, they're being tempted to perhaps look back to Judaism. Maybe we'll go that way toward God. And, and he, the author has argued extensively that if you do that, if you turn away from Jesus, there is no access to God. And so, so here he's saying, Rather than doing that, rather than distancing your, yourselves, because of all that you know is true, draw near to God in Christ. Enjoy right now the blessing that is yours in Jesus. Fellowship with Him. And further, fellowship with God and, and all the grace and mercy that comes to us from Him through Jesus Christ, that is what strengthens our faith to endure until the end. So, are, are you convicted this morning that you're struggling to endure in faith? Maybe that hasn't even occurred to you. Maybe you're just, maybe you're just tired and beaten down. Ironically, sometimes in those moments, that, that's, when, that's when we find ourselves least motivated to enjoy the Lord. I would suggest to you that is precisely the time that we need to be with Jesus. 
It is, is precisely the time that we need to approach the Father through Christ. Saying to Him, I, I need You. Just like we sang this morning, I depend upon You. Entering His presence and saying those things to Him and trusting Him. We, we, we ought not stop reading the Bible during these times. We ought not stop praying, but, but we, should, we should do those things with, with all the more vigor. And th- this exhortation to draw near to the Lord, th- th- this, this exhortation will say, do not, do not tolerate in, in your own life a haphazard or lax devotional life, but rather pursue fellowship through your reading of the Word and through prayer. Th- think of, of these, these things that, that we, 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 we oftentimes begin to think of as, this is just like taking out the trash or brushing our teeth. It's just something you have to do every day as a believer. You just have to read the Bible. You just have to pray. No, this is the window through which we enjoy the God who saved us by the blood of Christ. Draw near to Him in the Word. Draw near to Him in prayer. Think of these things as a conversation with a father and brother. He speaks to us through the Bible. And we speak to Him in prayer, in response. So, brothers and sisters, as you open your Bible, put that Bible in tandem with prayer and, and, and read the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures and and consider them, meditate on them, and pray in response. And then read a little bit more and meditate on them and and pray in response. Let this be a conversation between you and the Lord, drawing near to Him, enjoying Him, so that you might find grace and mercy to help in your particular time of need. Draw near to God in all the confidence afforded by Jesus' sacrifice and priesthood. He gives us a second practice of perseverance in the coming verse, which is hold fast to the confession of Christ. Hold fast the confession of Christ. Verse 23. Let's look at that again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. We've seen this word confession earlier. In Hebrews, and, and you may remember that when he uses this word, he's referring to the content of the gospel. He's, he's not talking about our act of confessing the truth, but the content of the gospel. Now, that's not to minimize our confession of it, but I'm just telling you how the word is being used. To, to, to put it in a, another way, what he's calling us to here is hold on tightly to the teaching that you've been taught and about which we've just been reminded in these pages. Hold fast the confession of our hope. The, the confession of our hope is this body of truth that explains why we can trust that on the other side of this life we will enter the promised land. We will enter because Jesus has paved the way for us by offering a sacrifice of Himself, reconciling us to God. And, and the author has noted that Jesus is already there. And even from there, He helps us to traverse this life. Our hope is not, is not our wish, but our confident expectation that we will join Him in the next life because of what He has done for us. Hold fast to all of that truth without wavering. He says, don't vacillate, don't limp between two opinions, as Elijah says in 2 Kings. Don't limp between two opinions, but hold fast without wavering. This is your rock, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the ground that establishes that hope? He says here, he who promised is faithful. The, the, the coming and ministry of Jesus Christ represents the culmination and fulfillment of all God's promises. You're, you'll remember that as the dust was still settling in Eden after, after the fall, for the people have even been, been cast out of His presence. God promised a seed to defeat the serpent. He promised that He would make everything right. And later, He, he promised that that seed is going to come specifically through Abraham. And later, He promised that, that seed is going to be a king in the line of David. In Jesus, God has proved Himself faithful to all of those promises. The thing for us to remember is that there's one promise outstanding. We'll consider it more as we continue in Hebrews, but that promise is the promise of the new Jerusalem. 
the land of the people of God, the better Eden. We don't have that yet. We live in this, in this fallen world. But because God has proven Himself perfectly faithful to keep all of His promises, we can know that He will keep the one promise that is still outstanding. He will bring us into the land. Because He's faithful. He's faithful. And for that reason, we must cling to everything that He has said about everything that He has done and is doing to rescue us from darkness and bring us into Eden. How exactly do we do this? This clinging to the truth, holding fast the confession of our hope. How how do we do this? Well, I I would suggest to you that on top of the the things that we might typically think of, which is filling our minds with the, the Bible, I would say that the author has helped us to be even more specific than that. To put an even sharper edge on that for us. And he did that back in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read it to you again. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's just another way of, of what he said later here in chapter 10 about holding fast the confession of our hope. And what is it that we have heard? What is he referring to in chapter 2? He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Well, he's talking about the gospel. This deep exposition of the gospel that that has unfolded over these middle chapters of Hebrews. Holding fast then requires a number of things. First of all, rehearsing the gospel in all its fullness. Rehearsing the gospel in all its fullness. There is a method behind our, our, our practices here at Providence. Why do we at, at Providence Bible Fellowship, why do we sing the gospel? Why do we pray the gospel? Why do we read it? Why do we act out the ordinances? Act out the gospel in the ordinances, I mean. Why do we preach the gospel? Why, why do we eat, sleep, and breathe the gospel? I, I assure you, it is, it is not to, to calculate or, 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 or shape some kind of unique brand for this church. We are not about that. We're not about just being different. We major on the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. From regeneration to justification to sanctification to glorification. From the moment the Holy Spirit opens our eyes in Christ until we cross the threshold of glory, we need the Gospel. So teaches the New Testament. So teaches the whole Bible. To to be light on the Gospel. Whether it's in the place where where we worship corporately or in our own personal lives. To be light on the Gospel is to starve faith. We need to rehearse the Gospel in our own devotional times, in intentional conversations that we have with other believers. We need need to rehearse the Gospel through the things that we intentionally put before our eyes, through the things that we intentionally put in our ears. And then of course, in our corporate times together, we need to be reminded regularly and often Jesus is the only way to be reconciled with God unto eternal fellowship with Him in paradise. We need to hear that all the time. We need to hear it over and over and over. So that's the first way that we, that we hold fast to the confession of our hope. A second way is that we evaluate all other truth claims in light of the Gospel. We evaluate all other truth claims in light of the Gospel. The things that I watch, shows, movies, songs that I listen to, conversations that I have, wherever they're had. Everywhere around me, there are alternate worldviews being cast upon me. Alternate worldviews competing with what we find in the Gospel. Holding fast means setting the Gospel of Jesus Christ as the standard of truth against which I measure every other worldview and not the other way around. I don't, I don't measure the Gospel by, by Islam or, or, or 
naturalism or, or humanism, no, nothing like that. I measure those things by the gospel. We get ourselves into trouble when we don't do this. When we treat the gospel as just another worldview, or ju- just, just another system of belief, just another possible way, this is just one way to navigate from birth to, to death. When we do that, when we traverse this life in that way, think of the gospel as just another way. And then we see that the gospel does not coincide with, with some other worldview, then we are very easily tempted to say, man, I'm not sure about this or that in the gospel. I'm not sure about this or that in the Bible. And the, the irony then is that when we do that, we're actually making ourselves the standard. We are deciding what is true. So it's not necessarily the gospel. It's not necessarily that other worldview. I'm the one that decides between these two which is true. I'm the great judge deciding what is right and what is wrong. It's terribly dangerous. It's terribly dangerous to not have an objective standard that, that dictates to me everything. The old fast is to plant a flag for the gospel in my mind and heart and to say, this is it. I haven't decided that this is true. I have recognized it. It's true by God's kindness. And this is the thing that is going to judge everything else that I see in this world. There's nothing in this world that's going to pass into my life, through my life, without being evaluated in light of the truth of Jesus Christ. A third way that we, that we hold fast is by retaining what coincides with the truth while rejecting what contradicts. Retaining what coincides while rejecting what contradicts. And, and, and this third one, that's related to the second one, obviously. We want to make sure that as, as we're evaluating things in light of the Gospel, that, that we don't just not do anything with that. What we find as we evaluate things in light of the Gospel should affect us in some way. As we're, as we're judging every other worldview, every other statement, every other belief in light of the Gospel, that should lead us then to divide everything into a couple of piles. All opinions, beliefs, presuppositions, desires, aspirations, joys, hobbies, everything gets separated into a couple of different piles. Things that agree with the Gospel and things that do not agree with the Gospel. And I'm going to hold to the former and I'm going to reject the latter. Let me, let me give you an example of this just to put a little bit of, of skin on this and what it, what it might look like. Many of you know who Jordan Peterson is. Some of you may not know who he is. If you don't, you can, you can look him up later. But he's a, he is a, a, a figure who has gained some prominence in recent years. And he says a lot of things that resonate with a lot of people. He says a lot of things that resonate with me a ton. But by God's kindness, my habit, born of practice, is to evaluate everything that he says by the standard of the Bible. And there have been things that Jordan Peterson has said that he, that he holds to that I have had, had to say, that is not true. But, but, I, but I have not stopped there. I've made the conscious choice. Even as I continue listening to him, I've not cut him off. As, as I continue to listen to him, I make a conscious decision. I will not adopt that way of thinking. Because the Bible says this. Now, listen, th- 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 there are things that Jordan Peter- Peterson says that I really like. But, I recognize that thing is being contrary to the Bible. And so what do I do in those situations? Man, that really resonates with me. But I see that it, doesn't, it does not coincide with the Bible. I have to say to myself, as attractive as that is, I reject it in my convictions, in my beliefs, in my actions, in my worldview, because God's Word gives a different way. And so when I say put everything into different piles and reject this or that, I don't... I'm, I'm not saying cut yourself off from, from the expression of other worldviews. Not saying that at all. In fact, listening to other worldviews is a great way to hone your discernment as, as you're filtering, filtering those things through the Word of God. But what I am saying is this. Rehearse the reality that, that faith is in Christ alone. And that alone is what affords me fellowship with God. It's, it's what alone sees me through this life with hope. It's what alone will, will get me over the, the finish line and into the better Eden. 
I'm, gonna, I'm going to reject in my thinking, in my beliefs, my convictions, everything. I'm going to reject everything that doesn't coincide with that. What does this have to do with perseverance? So again, these, these are practices of perseverance. What does that have to do with perseverance? Well, this thing of holding fast to the confidence of our hope, this is what fuels and protects our faith. The, rehearsing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's like a fertilizer on our faith. It just stirs us up. Yes, I believe this. And listen, when I, when I hear all of you singing on Sunday mornings, my faith is stirred up because I'm hearing things that, yeah, I knew them to be true, but I'm better off because I've heard other people saying them to me. And, and then I'm rehearsing them myself in my own devotional times and in conversations with you, sermons that I listen to. I'm hearing it all the time. And so that's fertilizer on my faith. My faith is growing stronger. But then evaluating everything else in light of the gospel and rejecting what, what contradicts, that protects my faith. And the whole game, the, the whole thing that we're talking about here is persevering in faith. So I, I latch on to what feeds my faith. I cut off what attacks my faith. That is holding fast to the confidence of our hope. A third practice of perseverance comes beginning in verse 24. Encourage one another in Christ. Encourage one another in Christ. Verse 24 again. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, first of all, like the very first thing that we might notice about this verse is that it reveals to us that perseverance is a team sport. And we'll come back to that in a second. But this assumes that we have an identifiable group of people with whom we are walking this road to the better Eden. Second, we want to be super rigid. The, the exhortation here is to think. To think. That main verb is let us consider. It means spend time pondering. Spend time thinking about something very specific. How to stir up. How to provoke one another to love and good works. Now, why love and good works? We, we might have expected at this point in the letter to, 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 to read him saying, Stir one another up to stronger faith, right? Because the letter is about how to persevere in faith. Well, you may remember from chapters 3 and 4 that, that for this author, and he's not unlike the other authors of the New Testament, for this author, he does not draw clear lines between faith and obedience. That They are so closely related. He, he thinks of them as a package deal, and they are. You, you cannot have saving faith without love and good works. And it, when, we, when we put on our systematic theology hat, we actually have to work really hard in the New Testament to, to clearly separate these two things. Because those who believe, they then, they then live in love and good works. Love and good works are the fruit of faith, which is why he brings them up here. People who have trusted Christ, they love God and they love one another, and they live in obedience. And so another way to think of this exhortation is, think about how you can stir up those around you to live a life of faith. That's all he's saying. He's not, he's not projecting for us a life of legalism or earning God's, God's pleasure or, or favor by obeying the law, doing the right thing, but rather obeying and doing in light of our salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Now think with me for a minute about how unintentional, unintentional we tend to be with our thoughts. We, we just let our minds run wherever they want to go. Just wander, meander all over the place like, like a bunch of puppies, just wherever they want to go. We spend a lot of time tickling our thoughts with inconsequential things. And for, for a lot of us, this is typically what we're doing when we're, we're just scrolling, scrolling, and scrolling on our phones. I'm not condemning phones at all, but what I am saying is that this passage calls us to intentional thought. Directing our minds toward a very specific thing. 
carving out time for it, putting it on the calendar. Now think about this. What, what, what if, in light of this exhortation, we here at Providence Bible Fellowship made a, a habit to be intentional about directing our minds to this instead of it being the overall, the overarching habit of our lives to just let our minds do what they want? What if it were our habit to regularly scroll not so much through, through Instagram or Facebook for hours, but to carve out some time to scroll through the membership directory, looking at the faces, looking at the names, and prayerfully asking, who might need some stirring up? What, what are the unique things that I might do to stir up these people in their unique circumstances and temperaments? How, 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 how might I stir up that particular person to live in light of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I might, I might not do the same things, say the same things with the young mother of three that I might say to the young man who's struggling to navigate a single life. This is why he says, give it some thought. Otherwise, he would say, just do this and do this. Give it some thought. Give thought to what that particular person needs. Now, there are going to be some, some, some things that overlap. Like no matter what situation a person is in, there are some go-to tools that we can use. In all likelihood, in appropriate ways and with discerning timing, we can, we can encourage someone with the truth. Perhaps reminding them of some of the things that, that we have been taught in this letter. Magnifying Christ in front of that person. Magnifying His sacrifice. His sufficiency. His mercy, the help that He gives us to navigate this life. We likely also will be praying for that person. Praying with that person. The following verse shows that, that all of this considering, all of this thinking about what we might do, it leads to doing. So look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These couple of verses, 24 and 25, they often get boiled down to go to church. Just make sure you go to church. And, and that is not the main thrust. Again, very strictly speaking, the main idea is invest time and thought into what you can do to help others cross the finish line. And then, in verse 25, how then do you act upon what you've come up with? He gives one way not to do it and another way to do it. First of all, how not to do it. Don't neglect meeting together. And at the very least, that, that says, don't fail to come to church. But more pointedly, in light of the context, he's saying, don't fail to engage in meaningful relationships. You can come to church every Sunday and do absolutely nothing to stir somebody up to love and Good works. Stirring, stirring up people requires, requires us to be here though. So the fact that, that we come here every Sunday mornings doesn't mean that th this is not insufficient. It's not like this, our, our gathering this morning is not a time for us to stir one another, another up. It is. In fact, we should come here every Sunday morning with that mindset. I'm coming here to worship and I'm coming here to encourage others. I'm coming here to stir others up to love and good works in light of the Gospel. But I would suggest to you that, that, that thinking of just Sunday morning as the vehicle for that, that, that is not, actually not sufficient. We, we, we should be doing it outside of Sunday mornings. And this is, this is a reason that we encourage all of our members to be part of a home fellowship group where we get together with a smaller cluster of people. We can have more intimate conversations where we pray with them, where we hear what's going on in their lives, where we can encourage them. And, and that's a, a further reason that we've got people who are doing this on top of that. They meet with people outside of their home fellowship group. One-on-one, one-on-two. The author here says, he says, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. So there are people who they don't do this. It could be that, that some in their own spiritual malaise, they've, they've, they've stopped coming to corporate gatherings, but it could also be that, that 
They're there every time, but they've withdrawn from interacting with others. And so, so he's saying, look, that is precisely the wrong thing to do. Don't stay away from church and don't stay away from, from relationships. Because what, what happens when people try to persevere outside the community of faith? How does that work? It doesn't. When I forsake the gathering, I'm not being stirred up. And people who need my help aren't being stirred up. Paul teaches about this in Ephesians chapter 4. He teaches that the church is not designed to flourish, function, or even survive outside of mutual service. In, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul indicates that when we don't serve one another, the church as a whole is susceptible to being tossed to and fro by the waves and be carried about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, ignore this and the whole church drifts in the manner that he's described in Hebrews 2.1. So he's saying don't, don't neglect, but encourage one another. Encourage one another. We've already talked about this a, a, a good bit. We, we need meaningful relationships within the church. We need intentional thoughtfulness about how to stir one another up to love and good works. And, and, and this is the author's way of saying, so then get together and do that. Do all the things that, that you've considered in, in your private, private time. You do that on Sunday mornings. You do that in your home fellowship groups. You do that at coffee or lunch or in your own home when you, when you invite other people over for dinner. Do those things. And what does, what does this have to do with perseverance? As we remind ourselves once again that he's putting in front of us practices of perseverance. What does this thing of encouraging one another, what does that have to do with perseverance? Well, it should be clear, but maybe it isn't. So, so let's think through it. When I, when I stir others up, I am prodding them toward the finish line. I'm, I'm cheering them on. That's what he has in mind here with the clause. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you recognize the approach of the day of Christ's return, which is, which is not just His return, it's also the day of final judgment and the day of entrance into the new heaven and new, new earth. He's saying, look, as you think about that, and you think that it's only getting closer, it's not getting further away, as you think about that, be all the more zealous to stir one another up to stay in the race. And so as I see that finish line approaching, I'm saying to the people around me, hey, almost there. Eyes on the prize. Look to Jesus. The better eat and it's just ahead. Keep running. And, and, and here's what we find when, we, when we're doing that. As we're saying those kinds of things to others, we're also hearing our own voices say it. So we're hearing those words as well. Almost there. Eyes on the prize. Look to Jesus. Better Eden is, is just ahead. Keep running. I'm encouraged by my own words as I'm sharing them with, with others. And, and I would suggest to you, you could talk to others in our counseling ministry, I would suggest to you that that is one of the things that is such a blessing about being a member of this counseling ministry is that as we are rehearsing truths to other people, we're rehearsing them to ourselves. And we come away encouraged. One does not have to be a mature believer or some kind of giant in the faith to stir others up. You'll notice in the text he gives no qualifiers. There, there's, there's nothing in this passage suggesting that do this, encourage other people, if you personally aren't struggling to persevere. No. The benefit will be to you as you, as you encourage other people. And obviously... When we're, inter, when we're intimately involved in a local church, then, then we're going to be in a position that, that other people are saying those things to us. They're going to be saying to us, hey, we're almost there. This life is a vapor. Trust in Jesus and run well. This is mutual provocation unto endurance. That's what this has to do with perseverance. And we all need it. So, if... You, individually, if you are struggling to persevere in, in whatever measure, maybe you're over here and you're, you're slightly discouraged or slightly anxious or maybe you're on the other end of, of struggling to persevere and you're this close to walking away from the faith. 
wherever you find yourself on, on that spectrum, what should you do? In light of the confidence that we have to enter God's presence, in light of our great high priest, you do three things. You do it right now. You do it today. You do it every day afterwards until Jesus comes back. You draw near, hold fast, encourage others. You just do that over and over and over. Don't withdraw. Don't hold it loosely. Don't hang back. What he's given us here is the antidote to weariness, sadness, and doubt in this journey. Enjoy God. Rehearse the truth. Prod others on. Now, what if you are one of these blessed people on, on, on this day, and you would say, I'm actually doing great. I'm persevering well. My faith is strong. What should I do? In light of your confidence to enter His presence and in light of your great high priest, you do three things. You draw near, you hold fast, and you encourage others. Because this is a prescription for all of us. These are the practices of perseverance. By God's kindness, may they characterize this local body as we proceed to run the race. Let's pray. Father, first of all, would you do us the kindness of not, of, of helping us to not run past this passage? I pray, Father, that, that this, this passage would be, would be something like a brand on our hearts. That we would not do like, like maybe we do on other Sundays. Where we, we, we hear truth, it's glorious, and we, we think of a, a, a way or two that we can apply that and that's on our mind for a few days and then we hear another sermon and we just wash, rinse, and repeat. Lord, let this, let this passage settle hard and firmly on our minds and our hearts. So that it becomes something of, of a mantra to us as we proceed through this life. In light of all that Christ has done and is, I will draw near, hold fast, and encourage others. Lord, let this, let this characterize us here at Providence. Let this characterize us outside of these walls, in our homes, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods. Let us be people who, who do these three things as we look toward glory. Not that there aren't other commands that you've given us in Scripture, but Father, help us to think of these things all the time and pursue them. We need your help, of course, and we pray that in the coming moments, as we pause to reflect, that you would reveal to us very specific ways that you would have us to obey your scriptures today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.